0: All right. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's News from the Drug War Front. My name is Jeff. My co-presenter is Marion. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Geoffrey, and good morning, listeners. It's freezing cold out there, but the sun's shining, so snuggle up with your coffee and sit back for an hour and a half of News from the Drug War Front.
0: Well, hopefully we'll have some interesting stories. Um, we've got an international focus today. We've got some stories on... Um, President Duterte. Particularly
1: Duterte, yes, who we have been whose career we have been following with interest because of his um, inclination towards uh, genocide particularly, people who have been labelled drug users by who knows who, certainly not by their families. So it's just the outcome of that since nineteen oh, twenty seventeen, I think we've been at him. It's talking nice to about it. So, yes, interesting. Possibility about of some that. repercussions, mm-hmm. yeah. And also,
0: <clears throat> also, we've got a very interesting uh, piece which evaluates the um, decriminalisation model used in the American state of Orovers Blondie, and accidents never happen. And uh, thanks for that CD, Dave. Okay, you're with uh, Jeff, Marion and Louise in the Two 2XX studio, 98.3 FM. This is news from the drug war front. We're going to kick off with our first national story. Uh, It's by Erin Cooper, ABC News, June the 15th. New heroin treatment yielding positive results amongst patients at Melbourne injecting rooms. And Louise is going to kick us off.
2: Sure. Summer, which is not her real name, fascination with heroin started when she was... Just a teenager, but she never thought she would become an addict. When I was 27, I met someone who was say, who was using casually, and I begged them to let me try. Let me try it, the 34-year-old said. Everyone thinks it won't happen to them, the addiction side of it, but it didn't take very long before I was hooked. She said, the next six years of her life were spent barely t- talking to her parents, refusing treatment, and working full-time and casually to finance the habit. I was suffering from depression for a lot of years, so I just wanted to be asleep rather than awake, she said. It, it was only when I used heroin at the North Richmond supervised injecting room that she was offered a new treatment, a once-a-month injection. It was just for the, for the injection. I'd still be in the same cycle, Summer said. It changed my brain chemistry. I didn't think about heroin ever. And that was uh, and that was all I thought of about for the last six years. If you put heroin in front of me, I'd kick it to the drain. I just have no interest in using ever again. Well,
1: that's interesting. The um, freeing treatment option, it goes on. Up until 2019, there were two main treatments for option for people addicted to heroin. And prescription opioids. There was the decades-old methadone treatment, which, in which a person is prescribed it by their doctor and must present to a pharmacy every day to take it, supervised by a pharmacist. Um, Buprenorphine, available under the brand name Suboxone, was listed in Australia in 2005 as a film that dissolved on the tongue, again under the daily supervision of a pharmacist. Typically, these cost $6 per dose as a dispensing fee at the pharmacy. And that's a note in the ACT. It costs consumers $15 a week for opioid substitution treatments.
0: Yeah, it's an important point for people to it remember. Is, it's too. state-based. Um, yeah. There's no maximum price. It's basically no, and
1: it actually changes from chemist to chemist quite markedly, doesn't it, Geoffrey? Yeah. Particularly in rural parts of New South Wales.
0: If you're in a one-pharmacy town.
1: Yes, that's it. You're I've, at their at their mercy, you know. Okay. until the introduction of the slow-release injection, buprenorphine has been taken as a film that dissolves on the tongue. These medicines, known as opioid replacement therapy, have their limitations, said Nico Clark, the medical director of North Richmond Injecting Rooms. Quote, initially, we worked on prescribing methadone and buprenorphine and linking them in with treatment providers. But we realise a lot of people are disorganised and it's a challenge for people to pay the dispensing fee, he said. He goes on, they describe it as a constant reminder that they have a problem with heroin. So that's every day they're doing this. Uh, That it's going to be difficult to get a job, difficult to plan a holiday and difficult to imagine any kind of different life, no matter how nice the pharmacist is. It often doesn't work and they feel like it's all too hard. So when this injectable came along, I thought it would be perfect for this group. The injectable is a slow-release version of buprenorphine available for patients to take once a week, once a month, or in summer's case, once every six weeks. It was approved for use after a randomised double-blind study in the US of more than 500 people with moderate or severe addictions. Was published. Uh, the report was published in the medical journal Lancet. It found 45% of people were not using opioids illicitly in the last week of the trial, week 24, compared with 2% of those on placebo. Dr Clark began prescribing and administering it to patients in the injecting room, who was suitable and open to treatment at no cost. He said because the injection produced stable levels of the drug, most patients experienced few or no side effects. Fitzroy-based GP Paul McCartney is one of the few doctors who prescribes the buprenorphine injection and says it helps patients overcome the tendency to solely focus on the substance they're addiction, uh, addicted to. One of the advantages, he says, one of the advantages of the long-acting formulation is it allows for different patterns in the brain to develop, which can be part of the pathway out of being dependent on a substance, he said. Having an injection that removes the daily struggle, that daily choice, is quite freeing for people. They can get on with their normal lives. Summer said that's exactly what she had done. Um, a quote I've leased a beautiful apartment in South Bank on the 21st story. I've made handmade all timber furniture for the apartment, she said. I never thought I'd make anything again, but I've made a dining table, a TV unit, a coffee table. It's completely given my life back.
0: Okay, it concludes with a heading More doctors urge to get on board. In an analysis of 41 patients at the supervised injecting room, Dr Clark said there was, quote, a dramatic reduction in that cohort visiting the facility after receiving the buprenorphine treatment. Almost 60% of people on the injection treatment didn't use the safe injecting room, a success rate higher than in the Lancet study. Some people that were previously using the facility 10 times a month stopped visiting altogether when they, uh, while on the injection and Dr. Clark has quoted as saying the average person that uses our injecting room has been using heroin for 25 years or as long as 55 years. And they're telling us they're feeling that it's easy for them not to use. The facility is now treating more than 200 patients with a buprenorphine injection. It comes as the Victorian government continues consultation to develop, uh, sorry, to determine the site of a second supervised injecting room somewhere in the Melbourne Central Business District. Dr. Clark said it was important the treatment was readily available and free for people uh, ready who were ready for it. What has uh, <clears throat> what this has shown is no matter how challenging people's life experiences have been to date, no matter how long they've been using heroin for, they can do really well in a short period of time given the right support. It shows us that an injection room is not just a place for people to inject but also for people to access the services that they've otherwise struggled to access. We've said this many times, haven't we, Marion? You know, it's not We just-
1: have. I'm a bit cross, though, Jeff. It <clears> sounds to me like they've actually leveraged this the injecting room to provide buprenorphine. You know, the article is making me a bit cross about, or oh, about suspicious about their intentions. Uh, but we have talked about the, you know, the use of injecting rooms for referral purposes, yeah. and and that that in fact was one of the great things about the Sydney. Not only did they stop people from dying. Put them, in t- put them in touch with services of every kind, referred them to for treatment whenever they needed it, for detox if that was what they wanted, but they actually went with what people wanted and that was the fundamental premise of the safe injecting room was they were giving people what they needed at the time, yeah, not necessarily pushing them towards one or the other, just accepting them as they came as people who injected and then keeping them alive to live another day and to come in and be ready for treatment if and when they wanted it,
0: exactly, but it, not
1: pushing them towards it. And this article has given me a bit of a cold feeling in my tummy about pushing them towards treatment. Yeah,
0: I think that's been a general feeling for a lot of people when you look at the history of the introduction of buprenorphine. Remember, it started as Subutex, which yes. was just plain buprenorphine in tablet form, yeah, and then pretty much without any consultation it got changed to Suboxone they added Naloxone to it Yeah. then it became a film yeah. and then more recently the injectable forms a, well,
1: instead of increasing <clears throat> the availability of treatment types they're actually moving people to a more manageable and Less frequently dosing kind of inje- uh, kind of treatment for opioid dependence. Um, and uh, it just sounds a little bit cagey, doesn't it? it so long as it's it
0: offered as an extra option. option mm-hmm. Not just
1: reduced to the only one only that's option. available because it's useful. Yeah. It's cheaper to provide. You don't need that many people to provide the services yet. And it's I think
2: it gives people a choice now, doesn't
0: it? And especially people are in remote or rural areas, I yeah. can see it would be a choice to be very positive. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you have to go. And
1: especially if that's what they their want. intention is. Yeah. yeah. The whole point is about going with what people want, what their intention is. If it's about using safely, that's one thing. If it's about reducing your consumption, in that's fact, not, not using at all, then surely it's a great thing. But as it being the only treatment available, that becomes a problem. Absolutely. The more choice, the better. The better, yeah. Okay, Dr. McCartney said,
0: the one thing standing in the way of getting the buprenorphine injection to more people was doctors themselves. He's quoted as saying, it's probably around 5% of GPs in Victoria at the most who are prescribing for people who are opioid dependent, and that's a limiting factor. There's a perception that dealing with this patient group is particularly difficult, and they'll be disruptive to waiting rooms and doctor surgeries. That's not been my experience. I find that when you provide people with appropriate treatments in a non-judgmental way, they're actually very happy and very grateful. Earlier this year, Victoria became the first state in the country to allow pharmacists to administer the injection, meaning that it's more, now more widely available, but would likely still attract a dispensing fee as pharmacists are not funded under Medicare to provide opioid replacement services. And this has been a big issue from the get-go. It has, hasn't it? It's, um, it it's, people have argued for years, why isn't it? either P- pbs
1: yeah I, it, it because it puts it's a dilemma for pharmacists if they're not um, provided support from the government under you know the pbs or under medicare and they actually have to become a benevolent society if you like or a treatment agency and they are actually, Running uh, a know, they're actually they business. that's right they're a business proposition it's not doesn't make sense for them to do this unless that's their fundamental goal in life. But you do not pay rent on a shop in a high-traffic, you know, shopping area, which is extremely expensive, to provide a benevolent service. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not... It's a ludicrous assumption.
0: It should be considered and regulated the same as any other medication that's prescribed. Indeed. Okay, the piece concludes. Dr. McCartney said uh, it could often cost people less for the opioid than for the therapy to come off it. People who are dependent on prescription opioids, for example, if they have a health care card, are often able to get opioid medications for $6 a month, he said. Whereas for other treatments they are that are perhaps more appropriate, like methadone or suboxone, people are having to pay $6 a day in dispensing fees, or more, I might add. Mm. So that's a real disincentive. Summer said she wanted more people with addictions to know about the injectable treatment so they could get help. Quote, for an addict, you'll always find a way to use, and with these other treatments, there are... Ways around them, but not the injection. she said. I'm addicted to saving money now, and that's as far as my addictions go. Yeah, I sort of share your uneasiness with some of the tone of um, the way that story is presented. Yeah, the
1: story uh, just (laughs) seems to be pushing people towards... And the people in the safe injecting room, I wonder if they are being, you know, steered gently but firmly towards opioid treatment, replacement treatments, and in particular... The buprenorphine injection. Anyway, it should be an across the board. Yes, um, it should be an option, and maybe that was one of the reasons why they're looking for one for a location in the CBD as well, because the intention of the of the Richmond-based um, safe injecting room was actually becoming steering towards people. To, sorry, steering people towards treatment. Well, towards the buprenorphine injections. So, yeah, it's an interesting interesting debate that needs to be had, but there certainly there's nothing wrong having that treatment available as long as it is still one of many, not the only one. I
0: couldn't agree more, Marion. I think choice, as in anything in life, is what it you want.
1: Well, it's fundamental. You have a look at what we are doing with every kind um, of disability or illness or... It's about you know how do we look after ourselves? How do we look after our community members? How do we make sure that people will come and be counted and be part, be part of, be a citizen, be of, of our community, whether it's the Canberra community or the injecting community doesn't matter. But we make sure that we try to Canberra recruits people to contact in order to make sure that they stay alive and stay well, until they. Stop using, or settle down, or keep using, but stay in contact. It doesn't matter as long as they are in contact with some service providers. They're not lost to the system, and their lives are not lost. Their lives yeah. are not lost. Well, yeah, absolutely. We stay in touch with them, and and they're not lost to us either, as friends or as, you know, um, yeah, just as people that we love and year in year out when the names are read at the at the remembrance ceremony. Yeah, ceremony there are always more people that we have lost have been lost to the system because they have been dealt with they've been lost to us because they've been dealt with shabbily in one part of the system or another and some of the parts of the system are pretty hefty yeah families in particular tend to be very disparaging of their Ah, their loved ones, if they don't give up, they're disappointed and you can't go anywhere with disappointment. Guilt and disappointment are the two emotions that are dead end emotions. Well, yeah. You can't burdens. do anything with them are hard yep, hard to bear.
0: Yeah. And and they just make it more difficult for people to be candid and honest and no
1: one will be honest when the expected answer, when there's an obvious expected answer, Jeffrey. Yeah. Mm. Are you still using they want the answer to be no? And users can tell that they know what they want the answer. To, you want the answer yeah. to be, um, and you're not supposed to be using. So yes, yeah, say say no anyway. Anyway,
0: interesting uh, article. Yeah, um, it is
1: indeed.
0: Choice, choice, choice is our call. Uh, we
1: will keep on uh, advocating that indeed.
0: Time for the eleven o'clock news. So we yep. will return after that. Here's the 11 o'clock news. Welcome back, listeners, to this week's News from the Drug War Front. My name is Geoff. Um, we've got uh, Louise as uh, one of the Carmel volunteers.
2: Hello. Thanks for coming in.
0: How are you find it so far, Louise? Yeah,
2: really liking it, enjoying it. Thank yeah, you.
0: Radio yeah, radio is important, and actually um, it uh, segues quite nicely into um, what I want to say just in support of two X as an asset for the community.
2: Definitely. Yeah, c- gets c- the word out there. Well, it
0: offers a, a voice for... Um, Issues, organisations uh, that don't have a hope of getting on mainstream media. Yeah. Um, uh, throughout the pandemic, it was deemed an essential service and stayed open throughout mm. awesome. Um,
2: awesome. the lockdown period, yep. which was great. Yeah, that is great. And
0: it provided a mechanism for karma to keep in touch with our community about things like um, delivery of naloxone, you know. Yeah.
2: Uh, and that's crucial because sometimes in you know in things we are forgotten as users, you know, so I think that's really, really important to keep that that word
0: out there so that's great yeah, yeah it's fantastic and the, this particular show has been going nearly uh, 20 years i believe yeah and i think two xx x is the second oldest community radio station wow in australia yeah well
2: done <laughs> something to
0: be proud of so if, if you enjoy listening to news from the drug war front or any of the 80 plus original shows that are um, produced and broadcast by volunteers each and every week um, give serious consideration to supporting 2XX, whether that's um, becoming a financial supporter or um, donating some time. There's lots of things that you can learn at 2XX. Definitely. Um, you know, there's studios, there's editing suites, there's... Um, there's it, it's just a, a great community in yeah. Canberra. Um, yeah. So seriously consider, um, yeah, contributing. Volunteering your time. Volunteering (laughs) your time. And given how little, um, you know, runs on the smell of an oily rag, 2XX essentially, if you do have some spare dollars and you want to support 2XX, that that would be most appreciated. 100%, yeah. Okay, we're going to go to a song and then we'll come back with uh, some stories on the Philippines' president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte. There's another CD that Dave brought in for the show today. It's the American band Tool. In fact, Dave and I went and saw them in Sydney just before the lockdown. Yeah, and it's from the uh, Ten Thousand Days album, and it's called The Pot. This is the American band Tool. Dave, that's <laughs> uh, real Dave, isn't it? Yeah. It is absolutely. Look, as I said, um, Dave and I went and saw Tool at Kudos Bank Arena oh, in Sydney did you? just before the COVID nineteen hit, and they were astonishing. They really, were they? Yeah, they. You know, the, the pyrotechnics, the, the musicianship, the yeah. just the quality of the sound, and and. They're just great musicians. It's, I guess, some people call it heavy metal, but it's it's a bit more sophisticated than just your head banging heavy metal. I think Tool are a pretty, pretty astonishing band.
1: I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah.
0: Anyway, that was the pot by Tool from their Ten Thousand Days album. It's coming up about 13 minutes after 11. You're listening to news from the drug war front. And as promised at the start of the show, we have some news about Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte, who, as Marion said, we've been following ever since he became president of um, the Philippines, the Philippines? And gave the green light to law enforcement to basically to
1: basically murder people who were, they could identify as drug dealers and that identification was, was simply a matter of founding drugs and a gun at the scene of the death of a man <laughs> and, and that was plant, all it planting needed planting
0: stuff and,
1: indeed and some
0: really ugly images and I remember um, some photojournalists from Reuters did some, a series of shots of bodies left lying in the street you know, yes. taped up in cardboard, just really And the ugly. stories
1: that we had of women that had women and daughters and mothers of men who had been uh, murdered that had been told to go out into the street, leave the house while the police or the militia or whoever it was who were doing, a, by the way, they were doing a per capita um, funding raise, fundraising for themselves, um, they would murder they would kill the, per- the man on site yeah. and then leave a gun and some drugs yeah. at the site with the with the body. And the uh, family were just left to grieve because it was not necessarily a drug user or a drug dealer. It was just a matter of a per capita basis of killing yeah. poor Getting men, men in poverty. Yeah, it was very sad. And we followed this for some time and now...
0: Very pleased that there's great... a potential uh, yes. retribution coming. Okay, the first piece is from BBC News, June 16th. Philippines drugs war: International Criminal Court prosecutor seeks full investigations. As BBC News, the chief inv- uh, chief prosecutor, sorry, of the International Criminal Court has called for a full investigation into suspected crimes against humanity during the deadly drugs crackdown directed by the government of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Fatal Bensouda, who leaves office this week, opened a preliminary probe into the drugs war back in 2018. Philippines President Rodrigo uh, Duterte then withdrew from the International Criminal Court soon afterwards. Thousands of civilians are known to have died under his campaign. National data acknowledges more than 6,000 deaths, but international rights groups have long warned that this figure could be far higher.
1: Indeed. A
0: spokesperson for President Duterte said his government would not cooperate with the ICC investigation since the Philippines was now no longer a member. The controversial anti-drugs crackdown has sparked years of international condemnation, including from the United Nations. Ms. Bensuda first said that she was deeply concerned about reports of extrajudicial killings back in October 2016. She said that she determined there was reasonable basis to believe that murder had been committed, and she asked uh, judges on the War Crimes Court to authorise a full investigation under her replacement. Ms. Bensouda will be replaced by Mr. Kareem Khan, a British lawyer, on June the 22nd, which is um, today. 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 Mm. today. Um, Her statement said the available information indicated that members of the country's police and others acting alongside them had unlawfully killed between several thousand and tens of thousands of civilians during the period that she looked at between July 2016 and March 2019. She said the court has the authorisation to look at alleged crimes during the time the country was a party to the International Criminal Court before President Duterte's withdrawal took effect. The controversial leader, known for his flamboyant remarks and lack of remorse over his deadly policy, has repeatedly said the ICC has no jurisdiction over him and said he simply will not cooperate with the probe. Amnesty International described the investigation, quote, as a landmark step mm-hmm. which could provide a moment of hope for thousands of families. Grieving loved ones in the country.
1: And it's a great relief for us at uh, hear news from the drug war front because we followed this in the very early days, Geoffrey, didn't we? Followed this, um, the extrajudicial killings, as it was called, and we were horrified. Um, at what was being provided, and in fact, we saw the the Philippines um, news stop providing information on deaths of so-called drug dealers. That was how they had to be entitled. Um, they had to be called drug dealers, because that was the uh, that was the provision under which they could be murdered. And we, there were families that were just left in. In desperation, they had no breadwinner, they had no father, they had no brother. It was very sad. And we thought nothing would ever happen as long as Duterte was in government. But with Amnesty International, the families of the victims and the International Criminal Court now on board, it looks like maybe something will happen. We've got another article on that called Justice Never Sleeps. Families of Philippine Drug War Victims Welcome ICC Probe. This is by Neil Morales and Karen Lima from Reuters, June the 16th. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte will not cooperate with the investigation into the country's bloody war on drugs planned by the International Criminal Court, or ICC. His spokesperson said, While families of the victims cheered the move, Normita Lopez, whose son was a victim of the anti-drugs campaign, said she could not contain her happiness when she heard about, learned about the ICC prosecutor's request to open a full investigation into the killings. Quote, I'm happy because I realise that justice never sleeps said Lopez, 56, who is among the many complainants to the ICC, calling for Duterte's international indictment over thousands of alleged extrajudicial killings. God is not sleeping. He always finds a way, she said. Her 23-year-old son was killed in May 2017 for allegedly resisting arrest during a sting operation. Duterte, who in March 2018 cancelled the Philippines' membership of the ICC's founding treaty, will not cooperate with the probe, his spokesperson said, while rejecting the ICC prosecutor's findings. We will not cooperate because we're no longer a member, spokesperson Harry Roque told a new conference, news conference on Tuesday. Under the ICC's statute, it has jurisdiction for crimes committed while a country was a member until a year after it sought to withdraw. In this case, between 2016 and 2019, when the Philippines pullout became official, ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda said she had concluded that she had concluded a preliminary examination into the killings and had sought permission from the court for a full inquiry. She'd said that last December there were reasonable grounds to believe crimes against humanity had been committed during Duterte's bloody anti-narcotics crackdown, whose death toll has stirred international outrage. A series of Reuters stories in 2016 and 2017 exposed the brutal killings being carried out in the Philippines as part of the war on drugs. Many of these stories were referred to the ICC report on its preliminary examination. Popular at home is the next heading. Despite concerns from the international community about the crackdown on drugs, Duterte remains popular at home and many Filipinos back back his tough stance on crime. His single six-year term as president will end in June next year and political analysts say he would want an ally to win the presidency to protect him from potential legal challenges and political vendettas once he loses immunity out of office. Quote, We do not need foreigners to investigate killings in the drug war because the legal system is working in the Philippines. Roque said, adding that he believed launching a formal probe was, quote, Legally erroneous and politically motivated. Roke said police used appropriate force and there was, quote, no intention to target and kill civilians, which I would... Have to dispute. I would actually dispute. We knew... That was not the case, Jeffrey. at the time. No. It was very clear that they were targeting particular people who were very, you know, in poverty or, you know, in the... Um, living in slums, basically. Living in slums and without any political protection whatsoever. And his behaviour was very much uh, akin to the way uh, Donald Trump was behaving, which was, I'm untouchable. I'm the president, I'm untouchable. And he worked still on that premise and still is trying to take that line. Anyway, the article finish, this article finishes... Oh, hang on, there's a bit more. A government anti-drugs agency said in a statement that cases filed against erring officers were being dealt with and denied there were, quote, policies that permit, tolerate and condone killings and other human rights violations, end quote. But Randy De Los Santos, uncle of a high school student, Kian De, De Los Santos, or Kian De Los Santos, who was killed by police officers in 20, August 2017, said he refused to believe government claims that the victims had fought back. He said he hoped reports on his nephew's death, which formed part of the ICC report, will pave the way for other families of drug war victims to secure justice. He's quoted as saying, I welcome the ICC prosecutor's move." There are many who died in the Drugs War. I feel the pain of other families, De Los Santos and told reporters. The
0: relief that at least there's the possibility of something happening. They and
1: thought nothing was going to happen at home. Jeffrey, it was just they were devastated and they were at a loss as to what to do when it was the police who were doing the murdering. They were the one I mean, who can you talk to if it's the police are the people committing the crimes? Yeah. It's a an absolute dilemma for and I, you know, we were saying it was just so wrong at the time, and didn't think that anything was going to happen either, but not so so. Good for um, Amnesty International. Good for uh, the ICC.
0: Well done, everyone. That's... And good
1: for the uh, good for the publication of yeah. the news about
0: it. Um, just a, a bit more recent information from the Philippine Daily Inquirer. I wanted to get something from a Philippines uh, media outlet. Uh, ICC ta- case against Duterte may take three months in a pre-trial body. Although the former chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has found grounds to prosecute crimes against humanity in President Duterte's war against drugs. The first step of the process will likely take at least three months. Parampreet Singh, a lawyer with Human Rights Watch, said the case was submitted to the pretrial chamber by former prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, who determined that members of the Philippine National Police illegally killed several thousand civilians from 2016 to 2019. Singh said that for the case to move forward, the judges of the um, PTC, the pre-trial, pre-trial chamber, chamber. Yeah. would examine if the prosecutor, quote, had presented reasonable grounds to proceed and that she's adhered to the Rome statute that created the International Criminal Court. Time in varies, said Singh, who once lawyered for the United Nations mission in Kosovo, noting that the PTC took only three months to open an investigation of crimes against humanity in Myanmar in 2019. However, there were also cases like war crimes in Afghanistan that took more than 2 years to resolve. For the most part, the threshold's quite low, provided that she's dotted her i's and crossed her t's. All things being equal, we hope the judges will open the investigation, Singh said. He made his remarks in an online forum with journalists in Manila and human rights watch officials from New York and Geneva last Wednesday. But the day before, the Malikanang Palace said it would not cooperate with the ICC. Because the Philippines, which was a party to the Rome Statute from November the first, twenty eleven, withdrew on March
1: seventeenth, twenty nineteen. Mm. Lawmakers dared Duterte. Leftist lawmaker, lawmakers mocked Malacanang's uh, position, daring the president to cooperate with the ICC. "Quote: We dare the Duterte administration to open." "...itself to the investigation. If it is not truly guilty of the thousands who died, Tokang style, let's open all venues to the ICC probe. And if you're not guilty, the investigation will show this," said ACT Teacher's Rep. Francis, uh, Francis Castro. Where the bravado of the Duterte, where's the bravado of the Duterte administration? The palace said there should be no reason to be afraid if one did no wrong." Now the, that the ICC wants to investigate, they're making a lot of excuses and it seems the government is afraid, she said. If he has nothing to be afraid of, and he says this a lot, if he didn't do anything wrong, why should he be afraid? The Duterte regime should face those crimes against humanity and all those involved should be made to answer for it, said Representative Ferdinand Gate.
0: Hear, here. No, Indeed.
1: It's very encouraging, Marion. It, it is encouraging and I look forward to more of the same. And, you know, regular listeners will know that we've been on Duterte's coast for some time, but we have no power other than our voices and the media. So we use that and we just applaud their behaviour, their activity. Good yeah.
0: on you. And I would say he's feeling a little bit nervous.
1: I would say so. Else we wouldn't, you know... He protests too much. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean these cases require evidence to proceed. They and do,
1: and the, if she didn't have any evidence. <clears throat> as, it be as that, as Singh said, there was no. She hadn't crossed her eyes and dotted her t's, crossed her t's and dotted her eyes, whichever. Then it wouldn't proceed. So exactly.
0: Yep. Okay, I might go to quick song, and then we'll uh, have another international story. This is uh, Walk on the Wild Side, Lou Reed. Oh, good. Yeah, Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side. Okay, it's coming up at twenty min- twenty nine minutes to twelve. You're with Jeff, Marion, and Louise in the Two WX Studio, ninety eight point three FM, People Powered Radio. We're on to it's a, a lengthy story, so bear with us. But it, I think the context is important because Oregon was one of the states at the last uh, U.S. election that actually uh, vote, you know, the the voters voted to de- decriminalise um, small amounts of uh, Almost all drugs,
1: and coming from the United States, that's really important. So you know, it's, because we tend to follow the United States in our policies, and um, despite the fact that our government says we are working on the basis of um, um, of data of you know informed uh, process, we are not. We the uh, the drug policy, it's you know, effective drug yeah. policy, has not been anything but political yeah. for. Yeah, Forever. since it yeah. began. Yeah, um, and we are not making our decisions based on research or anything like that. We're basing simply on what seems to be politically expedient at the time. Yeah. However, Oregon has some results that are cheering and uh, worth listening to and worth reporting to you. And they also this article highlights some
0: of the um, problems that can come if you haven't thought about
1: the through, yes, And
0: how many people may actually want help at a harm reduction or yes, detox sort But are uh,
1: uh, so, so it, immersed in their culture and de um, alienated from well, how- mainstream that they cannot find a way out of their position. So providing um, a change in, in position at a political level and then at a practical level. Has implications for the whole. You have of to the invest state. in resources. Yeah, that's right. Okay,
0: last uh, fall, it's um, autumn, of course. Oregon voters uh, decriminalized possession of small amounts of almost all hard drugs, taking a groundbreaking step away from the arrest, charge, and jail model for possession. That's been the centerpiece of American drug policy since President Nixon declared his war on drugs fifty years ago this week. Oregonians overwhelmed overwhelmingly passed Measure 110 110, that makes possession of small amounts of cocaine, heroin, LSD and methamphetamine, amongst other drugs, punishable by a civil citation akin to a parking ticket and a $100 fine. That fee can get waived if you get a health screening from a recovery hotline The measure, a major major victory for advocates pushing for systemic change in U.S. drug policy, expands funding and access to treatment services using tax revenue from the state's cannabis industry, as well as from expected savings from a reduction in arrests and incarceration. For years, Oregon has ranked near the top of states with the highest rates of drug and alcohol addiction and near the very bottom nationally in access to recovery services and while critics everywhere have long called the drug war a racist, inhumane fiasco that fails to <laughs> deliver justice or health, Oregon is the first state to take a leap towards radically changing these systems. Quote, what we've been doing the last uh, number of decades has completely failed, says Mike Schmidt, district attorney, attorney for Oregon's most populous county, mult, mult, Multnomah,
1: Multnomah.
0: Multnomah mm. which includes Portland. Schmidt, who publicly supported Measure 110, says he firmly believes the health model, not criminalisation, is the best way to battle substance use disorder. Criminalisation keeps people in the shadows, he said. It keeps people from seeking out help, from telling their doctors, from telling their family members that they have a problem.
1: Something we have been saying for years. The article goes on, support for decriminalisation comes with concerns about implementation. Moving to emphasise health care over incarceration, supporters hope will also start to remove the stigmatisation, stigmatising obstacles that often follow, including difficulty landing jobs, housing and student loans and getting a professional licence in a variety of fields. Quote, The war on drugs has been primarily, has prim- been primarily really waged on communities of colour, People's lives have been destroyed, says Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance, which campaigned last year to pass decriminalisation and is now pushing to see it is fully funded and implemented. We can't nibble around the edges on this. It's really important to me that we smash the stigma on addiction and addiction and drug use. And this helps get us closer to that. But five months since decriminalisation went into effect, the voter-mandated experiment is running into the hard realities of implementation. Realising the measure's promise has sharply divided the recovery community, alienated some some in law enforcement and left big questions about whether the legislature will fully fund the measure's promised expansion of care. Even many recovery leaders who support ending the criminalisation of addiction are deeply concerned. The state basically jumped off the decriminalisation cliff towards a fractured, dysfunctional, and underfunded treatment centre that's not at all ready to handle an influx of more people seeking treatment. Well, we've said that before. Always Marin, been we? an issue. Yeah, we to- want to do ourselves out of a job, but how do we? Do that when we're not, we can't fund organisations to provide treatment. Yeah, we're so you've got to think about the implications of what you're doing. Yeah, advocates uh, for decriminalisation don't understand the healthcare side. That's a quote, and they don't understand recovery. Says Mike Marshall, co-founder and director of the group Oregon Recovers. Our big problem is our healthcare system doesn't want it, is not prepared for it, doesn't have the resources for it, and honestly doesn't have the leadership to begin to incorporate that expanded treatment, says Marshall, who is in long-term recovery himself. My drug of choice from beginning to end was alcohol, he says, but the last 10 years was dominated by crystal meth. Oregon supporters of decriminalization point to Portugal as a reform model. In 2001, Portugal dramatically changed its approach and decriminalized all drugs. The nation began treating addiction as a public health crisis. There, anyone caught with less than a 10-day supply of drug gets mandatory of any drug gets mandatory medical treatment. But Marshall and others point out that Portugal took more than two years to transition carefully to a new system and replace judges, jails and lawyers with doctors, social workers and addiction specialists. So we put the cart before the horse, he says. In fact, Marshall and others worry the treatment and harm reduction horse isn't even on its feet in Oregon, which is leaving too many stuck in a dangerous pre-treatment limbo and at potential risk of overdosing there were no this is a quote there were no resources and no mechanisms in measure 110 to actually prepare the healthcare system to receive these folks marshall says most places that have successfully done decriminalization have already worked on a robust and comprehensive treatment system says dr reginald richardson director of the state alcohol and drug policy commission Unfortunately, here in Oregon, we don't have that. What we have is decriminalisation, which is a step in the right direction. The potentially downside to this is that it it
0: turns out not to be the success that drug law reformers are, are hoping, are hoping for.
1: for, because they haven't prepared yeah. for the you know the the consequences of what. Which is why what I think it's relevant done. to yes. the debate here. Um, Absolutely, because that's what we've been talking about. Michael Pederson's legislation is yeah. talking about. Um, There's also shockingly little data, most places places that have successfully done decriminalisation have already worked on a robust and comprehensive treatment system, says Dr. Reginald Richardson. Unfortunately here in Oregon we don't have that, I've actually said that, sorry. There's also shockingly little state data to determine what programs work best or track treatment outcomes and share best practices. There's also no agreed-upon set of metrics or benchmarks to judge treatment efficacy, both in Oregon and nationally and internationally. I might add, uh, successive treatment is a uh, contradiction sometimes in terms. I'm afraid. And the other thing,
0: Marion, and we've had stories on this when it's um, for profit. Yes, um, services. it's a
1: worry in itself because then you get the same thing as jailing for profit. Yes, you mm. get people who are, you get a system that mandates jailing or treatment as the optimal, as the end of the road, basically. That's all you're doing is sending people to treatment. Yeah. You're not looking at what's happening after that because there is a beginning and an end to treatment as such. And the pandemic's, uh, shockingly little data to determine what programs work best or track treatment outcomes and share best practicacy, uh, practices. And the pandemic struck. That's the point, and decimated a treatment centre, a system that was already struck.
0: All right, that was Donovan and Catch the Wind. It's a
1: beautiful song, isn't
0: it? It is a beautiful song. He was a he was a great performer. Still alive. Yes, indeed, yeah. Okay, look, we're um, working our way through uh, a long uh, sort of research assessment piece of the decriminalisation measures in the US state of Oregon. Anyway, um, we'll continue on. Citations and fines have replaced criminal charges. Today, anyone across Oregon caught by police with small amounts of hard drugs is issued a civil citation, which is like a traffic ticket, not a criminal charge. So if you're found holding, among other drugs up to 2 grams of methamphetamine or cocaine, 40 hits of LSD or oxycodone, up to a gram of heroin, you get a citation and a $100 fine. That fine goes away if you agree to get a health screening through an addiction recovery hotline, an assessment that might lead to counselling or treatment. Measure 110 did allocate millions in new treatment funding, money funnelled from the state's marijuana tax, along with expected savings from reductions in arrests and incarceration. But Marshall and others are alarmed that it did not require those funds to be spent in a strategic way to expand capacity for a system that has too few detox beds, not enough residential or outpatient treatment and recovery chairs, not enough sober housing and too few harm reduction programs. These are all services that will be desperately needed, Marshall says, as more people get pushed out of the criminal justice system and into the health system. Mm. Quote, many times the only way to get access to recovery services is by being arrested or interacting with the criminal justice system. That's right. Measure 110 took away that pathway. I know that it takes an intervention for many of us to be saved from addiction, says Jim O'Rourke, a Portland lawyer who opposed Measure 110 and it was also in long-term recovery. Arrest, he says, can give people the push that they they need to finally get help. But decriminalisation advocates counter that jail pathway to a potential treatment was so flawed, so biased and ineffectual for so long, it had to be taken away. The percentage of arrestees who successfully followed through an addiction treatment was low. And on average, a huge percentage of those con- convicted of drug possession in the state ended up being rearrested within three years. Mm. When you look at recidivism rates, says Schmidt, the uh, district attorney, 70 and 80% were getting rearrested. That's a complete and utter failure.
1: That's a real problem because you can't measure success, you know, at long-term or short-term success. What does it look like? It's a really difficult thing to, you know, put a figure on and to identify in people and say, is is it a successful lifestyle, people living a successful life? Yeah. It's a real problem.
0: Another point it makes is uh, that proponents thought decriminalisation would ease racial disparities in drug arrests. A key selling point to voters was that decriminalisation would significantly reduce or even eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in convictions and arrests. Blacks make up just just over 2% of Oregon's population, but as in the rest of the country, they've experienced far higher arrest rates for drug possession than whites. Oregon blacks are two and a half times as likely to be convicted of a possession felony as whites, who make up 76% of the population. The Oregon Criminal Justice Commission estimates that measure 110 will reduce those disparities and result overall in about 4,000 fewer Oregonians a year getting convicted of felony or misdemeanor possession of illegal drugs. So that's, that's, that's mm. good. Um, look, I'll just mention that the Addiction Recovery Helpline has had a slow start. Um, nearly five months in, just 29 people who have been issued a possession citation by police have called the line for addiction health screening. Perhaps you could continue
1: on with the police. Okay, so some police leaders are alarmed and frustrated. Meanwhile, many Oregon police leaders, while mostly staying out of the public fray as implementation debates royal, are privately worried. They're frustrated. They're annoyed. They're concerned. Says Jim Ferris, immediate past president of the Oregon Association Chiefs of Police. He spent more than four decades in Oregon policing. The state's criminal justice commission records show about 9,000 people were arrested each year in Oregon for simple drug possession before Measure 110 before Measure 110. Despite the drop in arrests, Fer- Ferrara says people are still committing crimes to get money to buy dope to support their habit. So how is this decriminalization going to impact that cycle? Efforts to stop large-scale trafficking in Oregon Continue as usual. Local and multi-agency and regional drug interdiction task forces say their work goes on apace. Measure 110 has not affected our work at all, says a regional spokeswoman for Drug Enforcement Administration. The Oregon legislature in 2017 had already made possession of small amounts of hard drugs, here a misdemeanour, not a felony. But some say full decriminalisation has had a demoralising effect on that work. Quote, we're already hearing of people coming into Oregon to use because they know they can do drugs and sleep outside and police can't do anything about it, says a frustrated Oregon officer who asked not to be known because of his work in drug interdiction. Preliminary state numbers show that opioid overdoses were up sharply in 2020. Though officials say it's likely has more to do with the deadly pandemic's social, emotional, and financial impact than decriminalization. Still, the experiment here has launched with the pandemic's uh, has launched with the pandemic's shadow, still very much hanging over the recovery community. Several organizations contacted by NPR said the number of people relapsing, anecdotally anyway, has skyrocketed. In fact, some groups say they're having trouble finding enough peer counsellors because so many are back using. Can the recovery community unite around a common vision? A key person to help lead Oregon through this rocky transition is 36-year-old Tony Vazina, who founded Fourth Dimension in Portland, the state's first youth-oriented recovery program. He's also new chair of Oregon's Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission, which is tasked with improving treatment services. Been in and out of jail since I was, you know, about 14 years old, Vazina says. My roots are in trailer parks at Pocatello, Idaho. A history of crime and trauma and poverty on both sides of my family. You know, and I was a product of all that. Now, more than nine years sober from what he calls a crippling meth and heroin addiction, Vazina says as Commission Chair, he's committed to having... Tough conversations across a treatment community that community that remains divided remains divided over the best way to implement Oregon's bold voter mandated treatment. Quote, We haven't built anything new, so now we need to rapidly design a new state system strategically. But Oregon doesn't operate strategically around this issue, so we don't have a new intervention system. We don't have a recovery oriented system of care. Vazina says, we've just decriminalised. We all need to work together to make sure that people get the intervention and support they need to change their lives because it's really hard for people, he says, adding, it's really hard for me. Some police, however, are predicting darker days ahead. Yeah, look... Nearly finished, but it just goes on to say there's not much in the way of treatment. Yeah,
0: and and that's something that I think needs to be brought to the table while we...
1: It's something that has to be talked about no matter what you do. got to include the range of um, approaches to drug use, from problematic uh, and addictive to manageable and uh, personal choice. I
0: I also think other uh, holistic... Um, a holistic approach needs to be taken with employment, housing, um, skills, mental health, um, all those things taken into account. Uh,
1: You've got to think about where people are up to and what the community is looking for. What is the aim of decriminalising drugs? Mm. What do you want to get out of it other than simply to redirect people from the criminal justice system? There has to be more than one outcome because it's not all black and white and never has been, never will be. It's like saying, just saying no is the answer. It never was and never will be. You have to think of the range of impacts that such a decision will have, and which means you've got to talk to a range of people. Lots of people have got to be involved in the discussion.
0: Yeah, all the stakeholders have to be have a seat at the table.
1: That's right. And the, the thing is that most discussions about drugs and drug use have not involved drug users. So mm. don't, you know... Nothing about us without us has been long been a mantra of input and and peer organisation education organisations. Make sure that everybody is involved in the discussion, where possible.
0: Well said Marion. Thank you very much for uh, your help today and lovely to have you coming. Lovely to have you come in.
1: Hope you enjoyed your first experience. I did. Thank you very much.
0: We'll be back again at the same time next Tuesday on 2XX 983 FM. We will. Look
1: after each other. Keep yourselves safe and well and we'll talk to you next week. And we'll leave you with a theme song, Golden Brown. We will indeed.